Our first scripture reading this morning from the epistle is from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, his building. And then from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 21 to 37. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. <clears throat> Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be re reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly while with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a woman so divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, 
but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. God bless the reading. Sometimes the lectionary is your friend, and then there's this Sunday. <laughs> We're in a series of trying to sort out what sort of church follows Jesus. What are the essential characters and qualities that go into discipleship of, of following Jesus daily in life? What, is, what does that look like? By the way, I'm Jeff. I'm the pastor of the church. It's been, it's been seven days since my last sermon. We... Uh, we keep trying to figure out what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a discipling community. And so far we've talked about how we need to be led by a different king. That there are lots of forces and people in the world who purport to be kings. There is only one for those of us who seek to be disciples of Jesus. And that is Jesus. However, that kingship means that we live in a community shaped by, informed by, defined by, and living by the cross, not the sword, not our great skills and abilities, our talents and our, and our treasures, but by the cross. It means we're a third way community. It means that we reject the nostrums of the left and the right, it means we reject the craziness of who's up and who's down. It means we live a third way. We're always looking for the different path when we seek to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus isn't easy. It isn't clear. It isn't simple. It's a paradox. John, I'm just so impressed that you remember that kind of stuff from way back. I, God bless you, my brother. <laughs> and that we're also a wisdom-seeking community. We're, we're a community, again, not, not built on aphorisms and nostrums, but on the search for wisdom, on a quest to find out more deeply what God is trying to say to us. That the easy answers probably are wrong. That... Occam's razor, that philosophical principle that says the simplest answer is true, doesn't apply to discipleship. It might work in science, but it doesn't work in Christian discipleship. A great example of these values, of a king-led, cross-shaped, third-way living, wisdom-seeking, and right-living person is ironically for the day, St. Valentine. Y'all, guys, y'all knew Tuesday, right? Right, 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 okay, all right. 
If you didn't, you're in trouble. You're on your own. <laughs> Valentine was an early Christian bishop. He was an articulate theologian. He loved his people. And he contended for the faith to the point where he punched out one of his theological opponents in a conference. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of thing you want to put on a card on Tuesday. But still, St. Valentine held passionate beliefs. He had, wait for it, you know I needed to say this today, he had passionate spirituality. Somebody's going to punch me now, and that's going to fix our natural church development uh, struggles. But Valentine saw that the church was worth contending for. We, we live in an era where, well, Gary told me a great joke once about the guy who was discovered on a desert island and there were three buildings that had been erected on the beach. And it's like, well, what are three buildings? He says, well, this one's where I live. Okay, well, what's the other two? Well, this one was my church. Oh, well, what's that one? I said, well, that's the church I went to, and this one, I couldn't go there anymore. <laughs> I know I butchered that. You can fix it later. <laughs> but we have the kind of attitude about that. Is the church worth contending for? Valentine thought so. So passionate about the fact that God calls us not to try to live the Christian life all by ourselves with a bunch of really nice aphorisms, but to, with the people of God, contend for the faith. That we're in this together. Not always in warm, fuzzy, lovey-dovey kind of ways. Sometimes we have to really say hard things to one another and to the world. God calls us to be that kind of church. Now the problem with our texts today, from 1 Corinthians, from Matthew, and the call to worship text from Deuteronomy, is that in my 35 plus years of pastoral ministry, I've heard a lot of abusive sermons from these texts. A lot of you shoulds and you oughts and you'd better and... I think that's a great adventure in missing the point in these texts. We, uh, we become very selective in our interpretation when we move these texts into the realm of you'd better watch out. You'd better get your act together. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think that text has to be part of the interpretive context that we bring to these passages, that we all come to the scriptures broken. We all come incomplete. We all come in need of greater connection to God and God's grace. And so maybe enough with the shoulds and the oughts. And maybe a bit more discovery about what's actually going on in these texts. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is beginning to now address in a direct sort of way the dysfunctions in the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church was so bad off, it makes, I know, it makes us look like, well, a Sunday school picnic, I know. Uh, it's 
the Corinthian church was troubled. People were angry with each other. They didn't like each other very much. They were, they were, they were doing their own things in little factions, and there were little groups. Oh, I'm Cephas' guy. I'm Paul's guy. I'm Apollos' guy. Oh, I'm Jesus' guy. <coughs> the really holy spiritual ones. And Paul in this passage unpacks for us both the nature of the dysfunction of the Corinthian church and the remedy for that dysfunction. In verses 1 through 4, he unpacks the dysfunction and he talks about the lack of maturity. I can't talk to you about important stuff. I've got to talk to you about, I gotta talk to you about the rinky-dink stuff of how to follow Jesus. You're still at the basics, Corinthian church. You're not ready, he says in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he does this very curious thing. He says, you're worldly. Now, in, in my pietistic, Mennonite background and training, worldliness meant you drove a nice car instead of an older used car. You wore fancy clothes instead of simple clothes. You went to expensive dinners and ate rich food instead of eating leftovers at home, as you ought to. In fact, Mennonites elevate that to an art form. Sunday nights in the traditional Russian Mennonite home, it's phospa time. Phospa is whatever is left over. Sliced meats, cheeses, pickles, and zwiebak two-story biscuit. You ate that and you were glad you got it. And that was worldliness. To, to not live simply, to be ostentatious, that was worldliness. Paul says worldliness is jealousy and quarreling. It's wanting what you've got. I wish I had what you had. And Let's argue about that. That's worldly. Wow, that feels like Tuesday to me. <laughs> it's kind of normal operating behavior. And so Paul criticizes the worldliness and the factions in the church. But he doesn't say, interestingly enough, so stop being worldly and stop having factions. He instead pivots to these factions in verse 5, and he defines apostolic leadership. Look, there are different gifts in the church and different kinds of leaders in the church and different skill sets in the church. Let's bless them all. Let's not expect one person to have all the answers. Thanks be to God that I serve in a church that doesn't expect me to have all the answers. Because... A, you wouldn't like the questions I ask all the time, and B, I know you wouldn't like all the answers I have. But we partner together. We trust one another. We give and receive counsel together. That's apostolic leadership. Apostolic leadership is not standing up and proclaiming that you've got a direct hotline to God and nobody else does. Apostolic leadership is saying, we're all in this together. We all have a hotline to God. Let's all use it and figure out what to do next. 
Does that surprise Gary that I don't have a hotline to God or that yours isn't working? I don't know. <laughs> Well, and so do you. So we, Paul unpacks a new definition of leadership, and then he talks about the distribution of gifts and tasks. He's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I planted, Paulus watered, God gives the increase. I, I love this passage growing churches. Because I do a lot of missional church consulting, and people say, well, what's the strategy to grow a church? And I said, well, there really isn't a strategy to grow a church. There's a lot of marketing techniques you can employ. If you want to grow a church quickly, there's a lot of really good, sophisticated marketing that if you've got enough capital to buy it, you can apply it, and you can grow a big group of people to come to your thing. I don't think that's church growth. Church growth is, or is the organic task of planting and watering and waiting for God to give a harvest. I remember when this room was not full on a Sunday morning. When there were, when I was really excited that there were twenty people. And we patiently planted and watered, and God has slowly given increase. That's how churches grow. That's how God's people live rightly. Because at the end of the day, only God's efforts matter, verse 7. And, and it's that singular purpose of of the harvest that God gives that is important. And so Paul concludes this passage in verse 9 by, by calling the church to collegiality, to calling it to, to being together in the task of living rightly. In our call, in our mission, in our activity, we are in this together as co-workers, farming in the same plot of ground, Living in the same building. We are in it together, Paul says. And when you are in it together, you are either right with jealousy and quarreling, or you've figured out how to live together. That's the crunch time for the church. Jesus takes another tact in Matthew 5, 21-37 from the Sermon on the Mount. And I think this is a fascinating passage because we love to take these four text units and interpret them as literally as possible. But at the end of the chapter, when Jesus says, love your enemies, not so much. No, 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 no. We, we, need, we need to kill enemies. We need to put our enemies in their place. But adultery... Murder, divorce, and if you're from an Anabaptist tradition, swearing oaths, we don't do that. Except when we do. This is part and parcel of what I've been saying about for 500 years, we've been working really hard as the Western Church in how not to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. 
tried to avoid it like the plague because it will change us. I think what Jesus is unpacking in this passage, verses 21 to 37, is a call to love. He's setting forth for us four kinds of love, the four loves of orthopraxy, of right living. How do we live rightly? Well, we begin by learning how to make peace with those with whom we disagree with. In fact, that act of reconciliation is a priority above all other forms of spirituality. You want passionate spirituality in the church? Make right relationships with each other. Heal the breaches. Fix the brokenness. That's passionate spirituality. Passionate spirituality is not how well or how loud or how beautifully we sing or how silently we pray or how wonderfully we preach. It's about healing broken relationships. Not just the relationships of, oh, you know, we had a little disagreement, but I mean the big relationships, the ones that perplex us and plague us, relationships between white folks who live with all kinds of privilege and people of color who don't. How do we, how do we mend that broken relationship in our culture between those of us who say we follow Jesus and those who claim different faith, maybe a way of faith that we think is suspect, maybe it's even a way of faith we think is dangerous to our way of life. How do we make peace? How do we take enemies and make them friends? That is the naive, simple, complex call of the gospel in a nutshell. You want to be right with God? Be right with your enemies. And it's so important. Stop what you're doing. Go into the, the altar. Stop what you're doing in your religious observances and go fix it. Now I know the danger of preaching that is that half of you won't be here next Sunday because you're out fixing relationships. So, <laughs> so take that with a grain of salt okay, and show up next week. It's a paradox, right? Thank you. Jesus goes on to say that love ought to honor boundaries. The whole issue around adultery is that there are no boundaries, that we've forgotten boundaries. And Jesus is calling us as his people to remember that boundaries are important, that propriety is a part of love. That shielding ourselves from temptation is the essence of propriety. That if you want to live right with God and one another, you, you live in a way that respects boundaries. That seeks to understand those boundaries. That welcomes them. Jesus goes on to say, that love needs to keep commandments. Divorce is fundamentally a loss of commitment. And whether that comes from the fact that we've gotten tired of the other or lazy in our own lives or unhappy with the other or that the other is abusive, 
There's been a breakdown in the commitment, in the bonds of commitment. And love, if it is to be love, has, has that stubborn quality of staying committed. Not in an abusive relationship. Not, not in a situation where someone's in danger. Because that, that commitment's already been broken in that case. But to remain in stubborn loyalty, in stubborn commitment, is, is the challenge. Jesus is saying in his culture, it's really easy to break your commitment. It's, it's easy to make commitments and it's easy to break them. Stop it. Go into commitments with your eyes open and hang on to them. And that speaks to the fourth point here, that love speaks the truth, that, that oaths are a result of a lack of trust in the word of the other. That the other is neither capable of speaking truth or loving. And so we make them swear an oath to uphold a set of rules, a set of values. And we say, oh, you promised to do this and now you haven't, therefore we will sanction you. And Jesus is saying, that's not the point. The point is, we are called to speak the truth in love. And that is incredibly difficult. It's tough to speak the truth, and it's tough to do it in a way that communicates love. Because when we hear criticism, we don't hear love. And sometimes the truth hurts. And it's hard for us to hear that one that we have placed trust in to come to us and say, eh, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know that you're right. And to be able to maintain that relationship, this is why I keep saying, unity isn't about agreeing. The quality of unity in the church isn't measured by how Stepford-like we are in our theological persuasion. The quality of unity in the church is measured on our capacity to disagree with each other with passion and vigor and then make sure before we come to the altar that we're right with each other. That's the challenge. Love, to love the way Jesus loved, isn't just to have warm fuzzies for each other. It isn't just to say, oh, you're really great. I really feel good about you. It's to say, you drive me crazy. And we're still in this together. That's the love that Jesus is looking for. That's the love that we're called to as the church. So, a right living community on the Sunday before Valentine's Day loves. Not the squishy, gushy sentimentality of candied hearts and flowers and cards, nice as all of that is. But a right living community loves. It loves because it's gotten over its dysfunction or it's getting over its dysfunction. 
because leaders love their egos less than they love Jesus. And when I say leaders, I, I, I do point the finger at me, but I also point it at all of us, because leadership is simply bringing whatever skills, abilities, talents, and gifts each of us have into the situation we're in. All of us lead. All of us follow. And the problem in the Corinthian church was everybody wanted to lead and nobody wanted to follow. And a right living community that loves has learned how to check the ego and love Jesus. A loving church also seeks a greater righteousness. I, I, I know how sort of junior high camp that sounds, okay? But it's true. A loving church seeks a greater sense of righteousness. It makes peace. It honors boundaries. It keeps commitments. It speaks the truth. It's not about a checklist of do's and don'ts, righteousness, but it's about a life together of seeking right relationships and recognizing that sometimes relationships will be out of whack. We will sometimes not like each other in the church. And that's when the call to love really hits. Can we disagree in love? Or is your disagreement with me grounds for theological and spiritual divorce? That's, if there's any question that drives the 21st century church in this country, in this culture today, that's it. Do we have to all follow the checklist? Do I have to get the manual of doctrine and government out and the articles of faith and doctrine and give you all a checklist exam and those of you who flunk, you're out of here. Is that how we do church? Or do we say that church that's led by Jesus shaped like a cross loves not anything goes but loves in a way that dialogues and dialogues and dialogues and dialogues Wood Green Mennonite Church is a church that used to be in London it's recently closed but one of the things that happened in their life together was in the beginning, a, a rather young man who started coming with his girlfriend. He was Jewish, and he made it very clear that he wasn't interested in this Jesus stuff. He was simply here because he was with his girlfriend, who later became his wife. In 20 years, Neil came to Wood Green Mennonite Church, Sunday in, Sunday out, always saying, mm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. Lord's table, no thank you. Uh, come to Bible study, no, no. Uh, interested in baptism, no, 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 no. 20 years. Now, a smart, growing, well-defined, good marketing congregation would have found a way to take Neil 
and gently, or not so gently, invite him to do something else on Sundays. But Wood Green Mennonite Church kept saying, you're welcome here, man. You know, push back. Talk to us about what you're experiencing. Struggle with us. Hope with us. Dream with us. Pray with us. We don't, we don't care that you don't yet follow Jesus. We're trusting God about that. One day Neil stands up on a Sunday morning and says, I've been here 20 years. I think it's time for me to follow Jesus. He said, the only reason I can do that is because you've walked with me for 20 years. Three weeks later, Neil was at the doctor's and they spotted something wrong. And it turned out he had pancreatic cancer. Neil was baptized and then passed away five days after his baptism. But for 20 years, the congregation walked with him and said, we love you. And it's not about what you can do for us or what you give back to us or how, how holy you are in our midst. It's that we love you. Period. Unconditional love is the hardest love to express or receive. And yet, in this small Mennonite church, a church so small it isn't even there anymore, it figured out how to do that. So this morning, some questions for us. Studies show that society is becoming more narcissistic and generally we answer, well, that's interesting, but how does that affect me? <laughs> and so I want to ask us this morning, how narcissistic are we in the church? How much of church is supposed to be about me? About me? About you? How do we overcome that narcissism? We live in a society of narcissism. We live in a society where it's always about me. We want me time. We want, we want worship to be comfortable. We want our, that's why we have the chairs we have, so that we can sort of work on that whole narcissism thing. <laughs> that may be the fourth thing. You know, we're hard to find, we're uncool, we're allergic to program, and we have hard chairs. Uh, <laughs> How narcissistic are we? Are we really willing to look that question in the eye? What would happen to our lives individually and corporately if we really seriously began to love Jesus more than ourselves? What would that really look like? What would change in our lives? And how do we transform our definition of love from warm and fuzzy feelings about God to acting alongside God, to making peace, keeping boundaries, honoring commitments, telling the truth. One more thing. That great Anabaptist theologian, Mother Teresa, who said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things.
with great love. May we become a people invested in that good news that there are many small things we can do with great love. Thanks be to God.